This is episode number 36 with Donna Gates. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe to uncover the habits, mindsets, tools, and rituals that they have used to become world-class so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Donna is the international best-selling author of The Body Ecology Diet, Recovering Your Health and Rebuilding Your Immunity, and she is on a mission to change the way the world eats. The Body Ecology Diet was the first of its kind, sugar-free, gluten-free, casein-free, and probiotic-rich. And back in 1994, Donna introduced the natural sweetener Stevia to the US before anyone else. How cool is that? She began teaching about fermented foods and coined the phrase inner ecosystem to describe the network of microbes that maintains our basic physiological processes from digestion to immunity. Over the past 25 years, Donna has become one of the most respected authorities in the fields of digestion, health, diet, and nutrition. Now, this is Donna's second time on the show, and I had to bring her back because I was inundated with more questions about health and specifically gut health after episode 13. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, please make sure you do. It is so good. And in today's episode, we chat about the five daily habits for good health, what tests you can do to find out what's going on inside your gut, intermittent fasting and fertility, the best anti-aging tip, the causes of infertility, why you should avoid intermittent fasting during pregnancy and when you're breastfeeding, what a keto diet is and if it is good for you, why knowing your genes are super important to make the best choices for you, how to heal skin issues like acne, psoriasis, eczema and rosacea, how to lower cortisol and support your adrenals. We've got a vegan bone broth alternative, how to heal histamine and SIBO, why you want to avoid eating in between meals and drinking alcohol, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 37. And without further ado, let's bring on the amazing, the super knowledgeable Donna Gates. Donna, welcome back to the show. I am so excited to have you back on. Well, I'm very glad you came up with this idea for us to talk again, because I think this is going to be fun and hopefully useful information. It's going to be amazing and so helpful for a lot of people. I wanted to just quickly ask you, I mentioned in the introduction, there's a lot of focus on health and a lot of focus on gut health out there at the moment. And sometimes too much focus can be detrimental. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, of course, I've been doing the gut for 25 years or more, you know, so it's like really old hat to me. But it does seem like everybody out there is singing the same song and pretty much the same thing. Like I'm not seeing in, in the world of gut, you know, information. Diet, yes, I see, you know, people conflicting about things, but not as far as the gut goes because the scientists are seriously looking at the gut and seriously looking at the microbes that live there and what they do. And I just am about, uh, James Maskell is launching a summit um, that is just on genes. And he asked me to talk about the genes of the microbes in the gut. So that was a big challenge, I, I can promise you. That there isn't much information out on that topic. So, you know, I did did the talk and he said, wow, this is interesting. We don't have anything like this. So there's a lot more to say about the gut, but it looks like everybody's repeating the same thing over and over to me. So I would think by now everybody's getting sick and tired of it. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems to be like a common topic amongst many conversations that I am having. So um, I'm excited to dive into all of these questions. So let's just jump straight in. Re would love to know for a very beginner that is just being introduced to the importance of gut health, what are five daily steps that we can take? So there's probably many more than five, but I think the first place to start is to add something fermented to your diet if you haven't done that. Because all this chatter about the gut really is about the microbiome in the gut and the microbes that live there. And it's really important that you have a lot of diversity. That's something that they figured out, you know, certainly in the last year and a half or so, but then they began to realize how critical diversity is. So, you know, before that, people would take um, a probiotic supplement that maybe would have five different probiotic strains in it. But there's many, many trillion, you know, th many thousands of more uh, and many, many unidentified yet. So if you eat my favorite fermented food, the one I think is most important to introduce really um, would be the fermented vegetables. And you will get your diversity in those. Plus, over there in Australia, you can get the um, probiotic liquids, and that they provide a tremendous amount of diversity too. Because you're getting the um, they're bringing in plants from the fields, organic, you know, and they have lots of many every single seed, every single piece of quinoa or rice or chickpea or whatever has its own little microbiome on it, and so you're bringing that in, and you're basically making a culture out of that with all those many different types of microbes. Every single batch that comes in is going to be completely different because the microbes and all those seeds are going to be different. So that's why, like on the label, we don't put down exactly what's in there because we don't know. I mean, it changes constantly. It'll always change. But that is really important to add fermented foods. And so, you know, you I think like here in the U.S., there's a lot of companies now making fermented vegetables, uh, a lot of different sauerkraut companies. I actually, you know, years ago used the term sauerkraut because I was the first person to talk about them, believe it or not. We didn't have any in the U.S. I uh, probably didn't over there either. But um, when I began to see how really critical they were to having a healthy microbiome, I started, you know, trying to teach people about them. And I used the word sauerkraut, but people would go in the health food store and buy a jar of cabbage that was pasteurized and, you know, in citric acid and 
and usually vinegar. And that was not at all what I was talking about. So I changed the name to uh, cultured vegetables. And actually, that's it's better to do a variety of vegetables instead of just cabbage. It's nice to put a variety of vegetables together and ferment them. So, um, you know, over the years, it's just, I still, it, it you know, it's my first fermented food, I think, or maybe the uh, kefir was, the milk kefir. You know, I think that was the first thing I started with. But then once I got into the fermented vegetables, I thought, you know, these really are an absolute must. So much so that at the beginning of, um, so so we help women get pregnant and that have difficulty getting pregnant and have a healthy pregnancy, have a healthy baby. But we want that baby to have a healthy microbiome from the beginning of life. So we actually take the juice of the fermented vegetables and dilute it and, you know, have the mom put it in a little dropper and squeak, you know, puts, uh, squirt that into the baby's mouth so that he's beginning to get some good bacteria in his gut. And then they never have colic and they're happy little campers. They're, one of the things about our body called you babies is that they're very happy children. And, and if you know about the gut and how important it is, uh, and the gut brain connection, you'll realize that a healthy gut is a happy person. So I would say, number one, you've got to add something for a minute. And then secondly, um, I really do not think we should have any flour products. You know, I know people are gluten-free right now, and there's a lot of gluten-free pancakes and cookies and all. But if you get rid of all flour products completely, that's really ideal for your gut. Because the gut doesn't like that sticky, gooey, gummy. You know, you you, um, chew it, and you're mixing your saliva with this pasty substance, which, you know, I remember in um, like kindergarten and first grade, we used to make paper mache things like masks and stuff. And it was, you know, made out of flour and water. Well, that's what you're getting when you eat a flour product. So I would love to see people, I mean, I highly encourage people all the time, get rid of the flour products. Now, dairy, dairy is not a good thing to have either in the very beginning. Uh, Some people do real well on dairy. In spite of the you know, the dislike for dairy these days. Some people do very, very well with it. Uh, and all over the world, in, in places like, you know, the blue zones where the people live to be super centenarians, where they live to be 105 and 10 and 15, they, they um, several of those uh, super, uh, blue zones have dairy as part of their diet. Um, fermented dairy, of course, and they, but they don't have much of it. But in the beginning, most people do have a leaky gut, and you don't want to have any dairy if you have any kind of a gut problem. So it's good to drop the dairy. And then if you do decide later that you'd like to try it again, make sure that you, know, you don't have any symptoms of a leaky gut, and you want to slowly introduce it. So if you haven't been you know, having it for a while, uh, the best thing to do, believe it or not, is to take... Uh, so you can make the kefir, and uh, when you make it, it um, keeps for quite a while, like a couple of months actually, or at least 90 days or so in the refrigerator. So you just can take one spoonful at a time, like one spoonful today and one spoonful tomorrow, and then a couple of days later, you know, you can um, maybe increase it to two tablespoons and then start putting a little bit more in, diluting that with water and drinking that. But what you're doing is you're training your gut microbes to begin to know what this strange new food is because they didn't know about it, you know, a week earlier. And now they're beginning to be exposed to it and then they start to, you know, organize themselves and 
you know, the, the leaders down there in the gut, because there actually are some microbes that lead the others and tell them what to do. The leaders say, okay, you guys are going to take care of the dairy and we're going to take care of the this and the that. Uh, but they can organize themselves to digest the new food that you've added into your diet. Um, anyway, so, but again, the secret to dairy is not much. And, and often around the world where they do um, drink it, they dilute it uh, with water. The other thing I would do is, I would say is number four, is to get the sugar out of your diet because sugar destroys the good microbes in your gut. And um, I would also, uh, you know, I know right now that people are real confused about this, but because everywhere they turn, they're also hearing how important a high-fat diet is. The um, We've got a newsletter coming out on a Sunday or so, I guess. Um, I wrote it. To clear up the confusion about fats. Did you have saturated fat or not? And, um, you know, as soon as the word gets out, uh, the word that I wrote about in that newsletter article, they will not be arguing about that anymore. There's a big chunk of people that should not have saturated fat. So, you know, a high-fat diet isn't good for the microbiome. There's a lot of research that shows that it does, the fat destroys some of the most important bacteria, including bifidus. And then other bacteria that are pathogenic that produce, you know, toxic substances called lipopolysaccharides that cause inflammation and then cause leaky gut, they flare up and they cause, um, you know, they cause that inflammation that begins to actually affect the whole body. Because once the gut is leaky, um, everything that leaks through it is really affecting not just the gut, but Every organ in the body and, and the brain are all being affected by this um, things that are coming into the body that are not supposed to be there. Uh, so I, I would love to see people stop, you know, the high sugar, high fat diets, which are how we always eat. Like it's just the normal way most everybody has been raised uh, the, these days. I mean, I'm always hoping Australia is better, but I don't know if <laughs> you might have just pretty much a diet similar to ours all the time. Fiber really comes from vegetables. Um, the paleo people have their favorite fibers. They like um, plantain and uh, sweet potatoes. They, um, you know, they like a little... So, so what happened with the paleo movement, it's kind of flawed in its way, but it came out with a premise that our ancestors never ate anything but, you know, lots of plant foods and, and meat. And that, that's actually incorrect, but I mean, they did eat other foods and they ate a lot of, a lot of roots, but they ate plants that kind of look like maybe what we would call a cattail, similar to quinoa. And they pounded it. There's many, many, um, I mean, you know, they've got sites where they've um, dug up where they see utensils, utensils that they were actually already pounding things and making kind of like a flatbread and so on. So, so that's not accurate, but. I love the idea of paleo. Like I, I consider body ecology a paleo diet because we don't have sugar and we don't have flour products but um, and gluten and all. But, you know, I love the fact that the paleo diet brought a lot of people away from carbs. And um, But what happened in the beginning is a lot of people, you know, felt better and then some people started feeling worse and they couldn't sleep and all. So they began to realize, well, we, we've got to have some carbs in our diet. And then when it became very clear that the microbes in our gut absolutely have to have uh, fiber, uh, they, you know, they came up with some ideas like, like the plantains. Um, but 
anyway, so all vegetables, uh, root vegetables, leafy green vegetables, they sea vegetables, all of them provide fiber and they're the most important food to eat. And that's why we've been teaching for years that 80% of our plate should have, or that meal should have be mostly vegetables with a small amount of protein. You'll feel so much better. You'll age better uh, if you do that. So, you know, the gut definitely can handle uh, processed uh, vegetables better than any other food. But also this isn't a food thing, but it's stress because we the, our, our body is designed that the minute something stressful happens, somebody says something to you that upsets you five minutes before you sat down to eat or you turn on the news and it only has stressful and pleasant events on it usually. And, you know, you don't realize it, but our gut shuts down. So it's not in any place to eat or digest anything because it's just frozen. And that's nature's way of making sure we don't spend the energy to digest food or because we've got something stressful is happening. We've got to get away from it and run, maybe fight the fight or flight uh, response kicks in. And uh, so I think, you know, that might be the most important thing. Like maybe number one is to really and truly make sure that you're eating your meal in a stress-free moment or a stress-free environment. You know, hopefully you don't have a family that sits down and then starts picking at each other and some people do have dinner time like that in their families, so it's it's really hard to eat under stress. So stress is a is one of the things you want to get rid of. So that's probably that's definitely six things right there. Yeah, they're all amazing tips. So we've got fermented vegetables, no gluten, no dairy, no sugar. Be mindful of the fats, definitely fiber and stress. They're amazing. Okay, so if someone suspects they may have some gut issues, they're experiencing, you know, bloating or depression or anxiety or whatever it is, or skin issues, what are the first tests that you would recommend they go and get and take to the naturopath or go and get done at their naturopath? Well, this is going to surprise you, but I'm not so sure that tests are always the first place to start. I would rather see the person change their diet first. A lot of problems go away when you change what you're eating. There are tests out there. Like over here, we have Genova Diagnostics that has a gut test and Great Plains. They, they both have what's called the organic acid test. And those, are, those do give you insight into certain things happening in your body, like biochemistry, and, but gut information too. Um, and like parasites, for example, and do have candidiasis. There are new tests, you know, that have sprung out on the scene lately that are allow you to uh, find out what microbes are living inside of you. So there's over in Australia, there's Smart DNA. They have a uh, test of I think it's about four hundred dollars to test your what microbes are inside of you, and and then Ubiome is another one. But the the thing is, is that um, Again, they'll show you if the diversity is off. You know, do you have diversity first of all, and is it? Are you, do you have too many of the wrong kind of microbes that are causing the problem? So those are valuable. The only thing is, is that the digestive tract is very long. It's, you know, the small intestine is about twenty-two feet approximately, and the colon is about five feet. And so when people go in and sample just part of the stool, just a tiny, tiny part, really of what's actually in the digestive tract stored there 
stuff that's been there for a really long time. And, you know, you really aren't getting a true picture of what's going on. So more uh, gut experts today are kind of questioning the value of even doing this total test. Just You should just start fixing the gut, in other words. And your gut changes so often. So, you know, you could do a stool analysis and then you start treating that, but in a week's time, your whole microbiome is changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Within days, like what you eat today is going to affect the microbes in your gut tomorrow. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's constantly changing too. So, it's just, you know, so that's questioning the validity or the value of I think I would before I even send somebody for an expensive test like that and I would rather you know just start them on a healthy diet mm-hmm. and, and you know look at their symptoms and then address those symptoms and it's a lot cheaper <laughs> yeah definitely Thank you so much. That's really been very helpful. Melody would love to know about optimal fertility. So her question is about intermittent fasting and can it be interpreted as stress by the brain, especially when we're trying to optimize our fertility? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, you know, she is not Melody is not a good candidate for intermittent fasting. Um, if she has a condition that she wrote about called hypothalamic uh, amenorrhea, in other words, um, you know, she is having trouble having a, a normal period. So she needs she needs to actually kind of put on more weight and you aren't going to put on more weight with intermittent fasting. As a matter of fact, it's a great thing to do when you're trying to lose weight. But there's no question that intermittent fasting is stressful for the brain. It does stress out the brain. That's actually how one of the good things about it, and that's why it works so well. Um, when, when people do intermittent fasting, they feel much more focused, and they actually are more resistant to stress. Um, there's substances in the brain called brain-derived neurotrophic factors, and it actually increases those. That's a really good thing, and it also reduces inflammation in the brain. So conditions like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, there's always inflammation in the brain and nervous system of those people. So for them, it's intermittent fasting is great. You know, the brain is actually being challenged by the fasting, and then it, it kind of, like, handles that challenge or, you know, addresses that challenge by doing all these other really great things. Uh, so there's a really some excellent people to follow. One man is Walter Longo. He's Italian. It's not Walter. It's V-A-L-T-E-R. He's got a lot of information on intermittent fasting. And see, I'm trying to think of some of the other people. If you just go into YouTube and type in intermittent fasting, some great talks will come up. And everybody should know about intermittent fasting, in my opinion. Now, for people who don't know, what that means is that you're there, there's, you're leaving a certain time before you eat again. I've been doing it for many years, long before it was called intermittent fasting. But basically from the last meal, let's say that you eat at 7 o'clock and you don't eat again until 7 o'clock in the morning, that would be 12 hours. But if you can go longer than that, you should go at least that long. So that means you can't eat late, have a midnight snack or something and go to bed or get up and eat in the night. But if you can go even longer, 
and add another two or three more hours on to the beginning of the day before you eat again, and then you break the fast, um, that's much better for you. And and we have a lot of inflammation in our body. Uh, one of the signs of inflammation um, are white blood cells, and intermittent fasting has even been shown to uh, calm down, you know, lower the amount of white blood cells, uh, which are indicating that you have an infection. So obviously it's bringing down a lot of inflammation in the body. It's a real, real a great tool to use for anti-aging. So if you're young now, let's say in your 30s, and you start doing it now, you're going to be a totally different person by the time you're 50, 60, 70. I'm sure we're going to see people um, like the millennials, for example, that are getting into health, and they are very much into health, by the way. By the time they reach the middle years or even the late years, it's not going to look like it looks at all. They're going to be so much healthier. Of course, there's lots of technology like stem cells and all that'll be readily available to them too. And even in the world of genes, you know, they're now, they have the technology really to look at genes that um, aren't good to have and they'll just snip them right out and add back healthy ones. So you're going to live in a very different world. But for now, intermittent fasting is an excellent thing to do. But not for Melody, not for you, Melody. Um, you need to gain weight. You need to do things like yoga and really reduce the stress in your life. When, one of the reasons people become infertile and, of course, don't menstruate is that is because of stress or a big problem. Uh, I see it often in women that are doing like CrossFit and they're you know doing these types of running, for example, where they're doing really, really intense exercise. So they've lost a lot of weight and maybe even be mal- malnourished. Anywhere where people are starving, like let's say a war broke out and food wasn't uh, coming into the country and, and women became began to starve, then they lose their period then too. So malnutrition is a cause of um, you know becoming uh, losing your period and becoming infertile. Low thyroid, low adrenal. As a matter of fact, that's the first thing I'd go look at is what's going on with the thyroid? What about the adrenal? Uh, is, it, is it really functioning well? And those two work as a team, so you really need to look at both of them together. But I'd say, you know, if you're wanting to get pregnant, put on weight, nourish yourself really well, do something like yoga instead of strenuous exercise because it's calming and it will help you reduce stress. But make some lifestyle changes. Um, you know, be sure you get to bed early and sleep deeply. That's the type of thing that's going to bring the period back. And I've worked with women that have actually... They were athletes, and they hadn't had a period for sometimes years. And then three or four months of you know eating right and you know everything on, doing everything I recommend on the diet, and then not exercising like that anymore, and their periods came right back. Wow, that's amazing! So, would you recommend intermittent fasting whilst someone is pregnant and breastfeeding? No. That's not another time to do it. Um, you really want to eat uh, for the baby and for the milk and for yourself, basically, because you're giving up a lot of you, a lot of your nutrients. So not then, not for pregnancy, not for breastfeeding. That's not a time to do it. And uh, so how long do you do- go for with your intermittent fasting? When do you stop and then when do you start again? A lot of times I, I get really involved in what I'm doing, and it might be 7 or even 8 o'clock but then when I wake up in the morning, you know, everybody says, oh, get up and have a big breakfast. I definitely don't do that. I kind of, you know, get up and, and drink a lot of water and I put minerals in it to alkalize. You know, when we wake up in the morning, we're dehydrated and we're acidic. 
So you have to give the body what it needs all the time. And obviously then it needs to be hydrated and needs water, but it's acidic. So the minerals in the water help with alkalizing you more. So I start off just by drinking, but then usually I want something, um, water doesn't count, but if, if you have a cup of coffee or have some blueberries or something, then that's when you, that's when you basically break the fast. I, I, I think I go at least 14 hours before I maybe have blueberries and, a grapefruit. Mm. Great. Okay. So Penny's question is about the ketogenic diet. Um, and is it good for everyone? And a lot of people can't thrive on that much fat. So she's curious to know how we find out what is good for us and what isn't good for us. And and sure, tuning in and seeing how we feel is really important. Is there any tests that Donna recommends? There's bioindividuality, but how do we actually know if our bodies are thriving or not on a ketogenic diet? Well, for one thing, um, there, I think there's a big, this is what the article that I just wrote is about. There's a misunderstanding. Uh, what is a ketogenic diet? It's not a lot of bacon, butter, lard, you know, like in the Western A. Price um, community, they eat a lot of saturated fat from animals like bacon and like lard, you know, that they think that's really good. Well, actually they've had some, you know, cardiac arrests in that community, uh, too many really, and I don't know if that's very well known, but um, I think it's because they're not considering five key things. One is definitely the genes. The genes are critical because there are five genes I, that I write about in this article that if you have those genes, you won't be able to tolerate um, saturated fat at all. One is APOE4, and that's the gene that puts you at risk for cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's. So with that gene, you really don't want any saturated fat, and you even have to be careful about fat from fish or even from olive oil. You know, you just have a, the normal amount in your food, but you don't go, you wouldn't go in what would be called a high-fat diet. The, the other thing about um, a ketogenic diet, it can be, I, I consider body ecology ketogenic. It's just olive oil, av- avocados, avocado oil, macadamia nut oil. You can use plenty of those oils. You know, use them even generously. But um, you want to, um, uh, but, but not the saturated fat from animals. That's the key, is avoiding that. So it's still high fat. If you're getting plenty of olive oil, it's it's still a ketogenic diet. So a a ketogenic diet could be a piece of salmon, which has omega-3 fatty acids in it. It could be um, a salad, you know, that's made with olive oil. You can pour extra avocado oil or macadamia nut oil over your food and, and, um, you know, have a vegetable like broccoli. But but that's a ketogenic diet because it's got a lot of fat, but it's from those fats. The um, other, a couple of other genes, there's a gene called FATO. Uh, it's sort of cruelly called the FATSO gene because when people eat a lot of fat with this type of gene, FATO, they will gain weight. There's another gene that when you, uh, it's kind of unfortunate for people that have this gene because they can eat the same amount of fat that their friend eats exact same meal, same amount of fat. They just happen to absorb more of that fat in their small intestine. Then, And so it, for them, it's like eating twice as much. So again, you've got to be careful about the, you don't want saturated fat and you even don't even need that much of the other types of fat for, you know, 
high fat is not for them, in other words. So genes are playing a major role. And the health of your liver, gallbladder, pancreas, um, those, those, and even the microbiome are all really important to consider. I mentioned earlier that, you know, high saturated fat destroys the, um, destroys the microbes in the gut, particularly uh, bifidus, uh, causing uh, this inflammation to occur in the gut. And um, that's, that's a nightmare because now you've got leaky gut. So for the microbes in your gut, you really don't want a high-fat diet either. So we have to consider, even even climate, you know, like somebody that lives in a really hot area like Hawaii or some parts of Australia in the summer when it's hot, you don't want fat in your diet then. You can have olive oil or uh, coconut oil, for example, which, by the way, is a saturated fat. It just comes from plants, not from animals. And if you look around the world, like Hawaii, for example, they eat fat from the coconut. And so, so that fat is appropriate in a hot climate. If you live in a freezing cold area in the winter, like Chicago, you want more fats in your diet. And many people living in Chicago would do well with a little saturated animal fat in their diet. You, you, you know, constantly people say we should be eating, getting our animal meats from grass-fed animals. That's because their fat, their saturated fat is actually different from the saturated fat that you're going to get from an animal that's commercially raised. So there's quite a lot to know about that. And again, I wrote that in the article in the newsletter, so hopefully people will sign up and you know, find that article and you know, print it out and, and read it because it's very, very good, very accurate information. So I think it's going to stop all this chatter and um, debate basically over whether we should be on a high-fat diet or not. Mm. Christy would love to know if you have tried everything you're aware of and you still can't cure your acne, what can she do? Are there specific bacteria that cause problems in the skin? There are. There are definitely certain microbes that get on the skin of somebody with acne that are contributing to the acne, but that's not necessarily the cause. In Chinese medicine, the skin, uh, the liver rules skin and eyes and joints. So, you know, right away you want to go and look at what's happening to the liver. So the liver may not be processing chemicals, um, poisons and toxins like it's supposed to very effectively. There are a couple of things you can do to help the liver, like take glutathione, take products like our Livamin that, that have herbs in them that help help the liver detoxify. By So the liver produces bile and the liver puts its toxins in the bile. A lot of people aren't making enough bile so that the liver can't get the toxins out of, of itself. And so it... Um, it's kind of stuck with them. But also, once it puts those toxins in the bile, the bile is handed off to the gallbladder. And then when we eat, the gallbladder drops the bile down into the small intestine. It mixes up with the food and helps digest the fat there. It also stimulates peristaltic movements. So now the food is getting, you know, stimulated to, the, the uh, intestines are stimulated to move that food on down and out of the body. Uh, so that isn't happening when somebody has acne. Now, a lot of people, uh, acne is actually a common side effect of candidiasis. And that was my problem when I was growing up. I just thought, you know, I inherited bad skin. And that's what the dermatologist would tell me. Too bad, you know, you just got bad genes. But actually, as soon as I started eating right and got my candidiasis under control, my skin cleared up. And it's always been clear ever since then. So another thing is that um, I've watched for many, many years people's skin clear up 
almost immediately when they started doing home minimis and clonics, said that they're removing these toxins. A lot of people who have skin problems have just, they are just not good at detoxifying. They've got genes. There's quite a handful of genes that uh, we have, many, most of us have, and so we don't detoxify very well. And today we live in a very toxic world. We can't get rid of these toxins. Uh, the yeast are producing toxins, big, serious toxins all the time. So they, uh, you've got to get those out and, uh, and that's where uh, clonics can be very, very, very valuable, actually. And is this the same for psoriasis and eczema? Sam wanted to know about psoriasis. So is it the same sort of thing, acne, any sort of skin issues? Is it the same? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. It's the same thing as skin, liver, toxins, uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. I've worked with lots of people with psoriasis and uh, different types of skin conditions. You know, babies have um, rash and a lot of little two-year-olds by the time, a lot of little babies by the time they're two have eczema today. It's just amazing uh, how many uh, reports I hear of two-year-olds with eczema. So it's the same thing. You know, it's your liver, it's your skin is just showing that there's toxins inside the body that can't come back out. And then, you know, children today are born with candidiasis, so their mothers have no idea. So by the time they're two years old, they've been eating normal food, and the yeast is really pretty acute in their body, and it's showing up in the skin. Mm, goodness. So Holly would love to know any advice on lowering cortisol levels and healing the adrenals. She's found yoga, meditation, and cutting out caffeine has helped, but any other tips? Well, I learned from Dr. James Wilson, who's a teacher uh, of mine, one of my some, some of my courses at A4M, that and he's an adrenal expert. You know, he wrote the book on adrenal fatigue. Uh, he has used a uh, time-release pregnenolone. It's a fairly large amount, like 150 milligrams, which sounds like a lot, except that when it's released slowly throughout the day, it's not that much. But it's really, really an excellent thing to get to help you. Uh, to take You take it in the morning, and it helps give you energy all throughout the day. But that just helps give energy. It doesn't necessarily... Um, you know, fix the problem and there's nothing, reducing stress and sleeping are the most important things you can do. Sleep most of all. So I always tell people with um, adrenal, you know, poor adrenal function that they need to stay in bed an hour longer in the morning. Like you can wake up, but don't get up and start doing things. Um, Stay in bed, take a book or you can even bring your computer in bed and start emailing people, but don't get up and start doing things because you need stillness. Uh, winter is a season for stillness. You know, we have the active, playful summer and the busy fall where we're harvesting things, and then winter comes. That is a season given for us to to heal our adrenals and recharge. So it's the same type of thing. You know, it gets dark early, and we want to go inside and build fires and stay indoors, but we're being still. So that's an absolutely essential element, uh, and that's hard to do today because it's not part of our culture to be still. We For a lot of people, being still and sitting on that couch and playing video games, which are super stimulating, uh, you know, their cortisol is up real high, and then they watch the news at night, that's high cortisol stimulating news, and, you know, they're just not, you have to pull yourself out of that fight or flight mode, but there's nothing uh, like sleep that can do that. So you may have problems sleeping. Most people with adrenal fatigue do have problems sleeping. Now, there's a gene called AANAT, 
that uh, is pretty common. I'm finding it a lot in people. And those, and if you have that gene, your serotonin doesn't turn into melatonin. So it's you know perfectly fine to take melatonin. It's a very very safe supplement. Tons of research on on it and how safe and beneficial it is. So um, you know taking a certain amount, like the sub one milligram sublingual, might help put you to sleep. And but you might need. Uh, more than that, like a time-release three milligrams to keep you to sleep all night long. But there are different reasons why people have um, sleep problems, um, like low iron, low B12. Both of those cases, low B12 and low iron, will also call, cause adrenal fatigue. So I would want to know, I uh, would love to know in Holly's case, uh, what she might be deficient in, you know, what minerals or B vitamins, B vitamins are really critical um, for sleep. It, it's really critical for those neurotransmitters like serotonin to work properly. But uh, you have to have magnesium is important too. B6 is the cofactor for magnesium, so magnesium works. But lysine is the cofactor for B6. So you could be deficient in lysine, therefore not having enough B6. And or not having enough B6 and not having being able to assimilate your magnesium. So, you know, all these nutrients is if you're deficient in these nutrients, it would be good to know that and then, you know, solve that problem by taking the nutrients. What role does bone broth play in gut healing? And what are the alternatives for the vegans and vegetarians? Well, there's a really good alternative for vegans. Uh, you know, if you in Japan, for example, they take a strip of, of sea vegetable called kombu, put it in water, and add other, you know, like wakame. Um, you can add other vegetables like carrots and daikon. And there's a dark brown root called burdock that's a really nice strengthening thing to put in, in there too. And you can make a broth out of that. You know, they often add, take that broth and then add some miso paste to it and make miso soup. But that would be, a completely vegan broth that's very, very healing and very alkalizing. It's got a lot of minerals in it. Um, so, I, and as a matter of fact, just while we're speaking about broth, not everybody should be having collagen-rich bone broth. Uh, one of the things we know today is that yeast, uh, if, if someone has yeast in their body, the yeast are going to take that collagen and um, they're going to produce oxalates from it. And then oxalates are, are like tiny little shards of crystal that get into the blood, into the bloodstream, and then, you know, move around the body and lodge themselves into different organs, or they can lodge themselves into the bones. So about 65% of them are going into the bones. Wherever they lodge, they cause um, calcium forms around them, and then they cause stones. So you can get kidney stones, and believe it or not, stones in your bones, but they cause inflammation. And in the case of the bone, they're displacing your stem cells that are there, so you're going to have lots of problems with your health and age if you lose your stem cells, and they're weakening the bones too. So they're basically, in a nutshell, oxalates are not good, but they're naturally present in plant foods, spinach, chocolate, uh, unfermented soy, nuts and seeds, um, you know, sweet potatoes are high in them. And so I always tell, you know, people that in body ecology, we don't count uh, calories, but we do count oxalates, and we want to make sure that we don't have those high oxalate foods. And people are today because they're, you know, making like a smoothie in the morning. They'll 
throw in some spinach and then put in some almond milk or cashew milk is real popular over here too. And so they're getting a huge amount of oxalates right there at the beginning of the day to make their morning smoothie. Uh, so, you know, this is a little more, I mean, she didn't ask this question exactly, just she wanted to know about a broth for vegans. But um, I, I really feel that, you know, vegans are, Vegans always have to take certain supplements. They are very likely to be deficient in iron and B12. Carnitine, they could be deficient in that too. Uh, and they tend to be the ones who have a lot of nuts and seeds in their diet for protein. So they, you know, just want them to be aware that there's a danger in doing that. Um, you can be a healthy vegetarian. You want to have the fermented foods in your diet and all the things I mentioned, lots and lots of vegetables. But um, I think that, you know, like, you got to be real mindful where you're encountering uh, oxalates and then where do your proteins come from. So miso soup is excellent. Natto is excellent. Tempeh uh, is good because those are all fermented soy products. Uh, pea protein, like we have a protein shake and a new one coming out in just a few weeks uh, on ferment, uh, with fermented pea protein. That's a great protein. And when it's fermented, you can actually digest it. We have a um, super spirulina plus, which is fermented spirulina, which is fantastic for you. And um, it really has to be fermented to get the benefits of spirulina. Most of the time, I'll put the two together. I'll put the protein powder that we make, and then the it's called it's got eight essential, uh, wonderful medicinal mushrooms in it. So I'll put that with the super spirulina, shake that up and drink that. And that is a great, uh, you know, protein, a, ve- a vegan protein. I'm not a vegan, but a lot of times, especially in the summer, I'm very happy not to eat meat much of the time. And and I think a lot of people feel this way. Meat's heavy for the for the summer, hot summer months. A lot of people just don't have a taste for it. Uh, but you're wrong. Many vegans who've been vegans for a really really long time have to be very mindful about you know about their diet and making sure they get those de- um, nutrients that they're deficient in. And tuning in and just checking in with how you're feeling is really important. And if you're feeling a bit off, you know, don't ignore it. Yeah, because this is the funniest thing, but I had a man years ago call me for a consultation and he he was a major well-known vegan and he had his own radio show and lots of people called him and, and he didn't feel good. And, uh, and so it was a blood type O and they really are the ones who seem to need... Um, animal protein most of all but he really kept you know trying to get me to tell him he should stop eating start eating meat again yeah i'll eat meat if you want me to i will you know and i said well well let's try this first and then um but finally i really began to get it that he wanted permission to become uh to eat some animal protein at least some fish so um because he wasn't feeling good he was hadn't been feeling good for a really long time even though he took this very strong stand on on veganism and it's you know there's a lot of people that are you know practitioners that would be real concerned if a vegan came into their office a, a woman who was wanting to have a baby or was pregnant and she was a vegan and i know if you are a vegan and you believe in it you know wholeheartedly then you're probably getting angry hearing me say this but there's a lot of risks. There's a lot of nutrients that a vegan is uh, not likely to be able to obtain. And then the baby, of course, is going to be affected from that. So it's, it's you know, I think you can be largely vegan. Like I've said for years, our, our diet is 80% vegetables. And if you're going to have protein, only 20% of your plate would be protein. So you're not having much protein, but 
but um, and you're having a lot of vegetables. I think many, many people would do better. You know, in a lot of cultures, they'll stir fry a little bit of protein, like chicken, let's say, or fish, into a big, you know, group, a combination of vegetables. Uh, because meat was expensive and difficult to obtain, and they didn't need much of it. So I don't think, you know, there's kind of a, a balance in between where you can, you know, we should be having a, a, a mostly vegetables and some animal protein. But you can do it. You can be a vegan, but you've got to rely on these plant protein powders. And, um, you know, miso. Miso is really great. Nato, as I mentioned. That's kind of all you got you know, nuts and seeds, you just got to watch out for those. So I, I, I'm always a little concerned about for vegans. Mm. And a lot of people don't, a lot of people try it for a while, they don't feel good. And then they realize, you know, I, I'm tired, I'm weak, I don't feel good. I think I should try a little meat. Or they'll walk by a restaurant and meat is cooking and they'll just smell it and it smells so delicious. But I really don't think a, a woman should be a vegan when she's pregnant, for sure. Mm. It's definitely interesting because it seems to be such a touchy topic, but a lot of the guests that I've had, a lot of the health experts that I've had on the show, you know, Dr. McCullough and Nora Gagaudis, Ben Greenfield, all these amazing people, there's a common thread and that is don't overeat protein. I think, you know, with the paleo movement, although it's been amazing getting people off these grains and these sugars, you know, some people have kind of taken that as a green light to go for it with the protein, but that's not what anyone's saying here. You know, little tiny bits, not not going overboard with it. So thank you for clarifying that. I agree with all of them, and I, I know a lot of us are on that same page. Um, when you know, our body can adapt to so many different things. And, you know, people always talk about the paleo, our ancestors, if there was tons of animal protein available, we'll try to go catch an, a rabbit or a squirrel in your yard. And then, you know, and what if they're not around? And what if there's a whole bunch of people, uh, other people looking for that same squirrel to eat? So man has all, often been, you know, without protein. But when they were able to get protein, it was a really, really important food for them for strength. Um, in the cultures where people eat a lot of protein, like for example, the Maasai warriors in Africa, they're really the fiercest warriors of all. They used to capture other tribes and sell them off as slaves and they would sharpen their teeth and everybody was scared to death. They're tall, super muscular, very, very high testosterone, warlike people, but their diet consisted mostly of meat and they didn't have vegetables. Uh, they would... Um, cut, you know, they had cows and they would slit open their skin and then, you know, drink the blood for the minerals, but they didn't have a lot of vegetables in their diet. They were getting a lot of minerals and, um, you know, food. I mean, their meat came from, came from the animals they raised, but that's the kind of person it produced. Uh, so vegans are more peaceful in that sense. So you'll find like, in a, you know, monks, for example, are encouraged to be vegans. They don't have much of a sex drive. And that worked for them because they're not supposed to be attracted to women. They're not going to be reproducing. And their testosterone levels were kept at a lower, um, you know, a lower level by, by not eating meat. So if you want, if I were going to put it together, an army of soldiers, I would insist that they ate meat. I wouldn't hire any vegans. I mean, I wouldn't would hire or draft any vegans for my army because I'd want them to be fighters, you know. So what we eat creates our body. So true. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts now on histamines because I feel like almost every second person I speak to has some sort of histamine intolerance at the moment. Phoebe wants to know if you're dealing with a histamine allergy, what's going on first of all and should she be introducing fermented foods? Uh, Not initially. If you have a histamine issue, you don't want to eat fermented foods because they tend to be high in histamine, some of them very high. But, you know, so let's look at histamine. Is it a friend? Is it a foe? It's, it's, It's actually a friend. We have to produce histamine in our gut. It helps us produce stomach acid, for example. But some people, there's a gene, HMH, NMT, if you have variants or SNPs in those, the HNMT genes, um, you're going to produce more more histamine. So those people have to do certain things to help out uh, compensate for that or, you know, balance that out. So histamine is good. You just don't want too much of it. And then, you know, they get a lot of sniffy noses and itchy skins, and it can be pretty miserable. Um, Fermented foods... Uh, the, what I always tell people to do is first initially reduce, don't, don't eat any fermented foods. So an expert that I interviewed for the Gut Summit, Janice Jania, she explained it really beautifully. She said, imagine that some people have a bucket and it's a small bucket, so it can only hold a little bit of histamine. And if they get too much, the bucket overflows, you know. Some people have a big bucket so they can hold more histamine without having a reaction to it. Now, the people with the HNMT genes, they variants, they they've got the small bucket, so they really can't hold much or deal with much histamine. So what can they do? Well, initially, don't have any fermented foods and get that histamine, you know, empty out your bucket a little bit so it's not overflowing. And then, you know, the best fermented food to start back with is fermented vegetables made with plantarum. So I've been, years and years ago, I came up with this idea to make a better fermented vegetable by putting in a bacteria called Lactobacillus plantarum. Plantarum is really one of the superstars in the gut. It's one of the true leaders that tells some of the other bacteria what to do. And one of the things that it does is it degrades histamine. It actually eats oxalates too, so that's another good reason to have it. Um, Also, if you have to take an antibiotic and you've got a lot of plantarum living inside of you, most antibiotics don't kill kill off the plantarum, so you're not going to get that overgrowth of yeast in your gut. Um, It's uh, antiviral and See, and it makes folate too. So it's a pretty special bacteria. So I, we've been for years putting it uh, as a starter into the fermented vegetable recipes that we have. And then people let that sit out and ferment. And then there's lots and lots of them in the final batch. So you're eating a few tablespoons of that with your meal. And you're getting all that good plantarum in you. Plantarum degrades histamine. So if you've got a meal with a couple of tablespoons of this plant, uh, you know, this cultured vegetables with the plantarum in it, they're going to go to, the plantarum is going to go to work right away, knock down that histamine so you don't have a reaction. So that is the fermented food that someone with histamine intolerance should be having. And Monique would love to know about SIBO. Will the diet and probiotics be enough to eliminate SIBO? Where do we even start? Well, over there in Australia, um, the Monash University people came up with a FODMAP diet. They basically looked really carefully at the types of foods that 
uh, when people have gut issues, SIBO basically, they need to eliminate these FODMAP foods. And I totally agree with that. I mean, most people that are specialists in the gut totally agree with uh, um, the FODMAP diet. It's the place to start for SIBO. So you'll avoid um, gluten, of course, and wheat, and um, i trying to think, um, I, I can't even remember off the top of my head right this minute all of them, but I know that, you know, um, like you can have xylitol and sorbitol and malitol. The one sugar alcohol you can have is erythritol because it's fermented. It doesn't seem to bother people, but garlic and onions and what are the fructose, like fruit, you know, so those, those foods you want to initially eliminate. Uh, now, why do you have the SIBO? Well, there's something in the gut that's not supposed to be there. It could be a bad pathogenic um, microbe, or it could be a, a good microbe that would be fine, great to have done in the gut, but he's not supposed to be up in the small intestine where he's causing problems. So you need to wipe that, remove him from that area. Now, this is where an intermittent fasting comes in. So you've got this long period, you know, 12, 14, 15, 16 hours where you don't eat. Of course, you're sleeping part of that time, so it's not as bad as it sounds. That's real valuable for SIBO. But you can take um, supplements like oil of oregano and um, I think berberine is really good. There's a group of supplements that are real effective at killing microbes in the gut. And if those don't work after several months, then you might want to take an antibiotic. You, you need to go to a doctor and get an antibiotic that works specifically in the gut. While you're on that antibiotic, you want to be um, also using the, the botanicals, like the oil of oregano, for example. And then once you finish the course of the antibiotics, stay on the botanicals for another three months to make sure. Because many times... You know, uh, an antibiotic will, will knock something down and then but it doesn't get all of them, so they'll just grow back, you know, those, and some are resistant to the antibiotic, so they'll just grow back up again. Uh, so it's, you know, a tricky thing. And I think one of the reasons so many people have relapses with SIBO is because they don't fix the colon, the microbiome in the colon. That is where, um, that's where fermented foods come in. And so what I do is, you know, you know, explain to people about the five map diet, which foods they want to initially eliminate for a while. Um, talk, you know, help address the uh, microbe in the gut that's not supposed to be there, and 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 not eating between meals. This is really important because there's a uh, something that happens between meals about two hours after we eat. A little, it's called the migrating motor complex. It's a little sweeping movement that happens in the gut that sweeps bacteria along down into the large intestine. And if you're eating all the time and snacking, like people are encouraged to do by the big from, you know, food companies, they want us to eat bars and crackers and things like that between meals. Uh, but we don't, so, so this little migrating motor complex, this little sweeping rea um, action in our gut doesn't ever happen. So that's another reason why these microbes get caught up in the small intestine where they're not supposed to be. Uh, but a big cause of, of SIBO is because, uh, you know, maybe eating out. Many more people today are eating out in restaurants, and the restaurants aren't clean, and so they pick up a pathogen. And sometimes they SIBO comes because somebody had a reaction to food and didn't notice much from that first, you know, exposure to the pathogen in the food. But the next time, they um, eat out and it happens again. There's a real strong, uh, the immune system's on the alert 
and this time has a real strong reaction to that second exposure, and that can cause SIBO too. So there are different reasons why SIBO, SIBO actually occurs. And, uh, and so usually people are told to completely avoid fermented foods, but I, I don't agree with that because you've ultimately got to get healthy digestive tract, and that means a healthy microbiome um, community living in the gut, and that's where you're, something fermented, like the fermented vegetables, needs to be added back into the diet. Yeah, it's funny how we are conditioned to think that we need to snack and eat every hour or every two hours. I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I don't even think about food in between those times because I'm so satisfied. What do you have for breakfast? I usually have, I call it a fatty latte, and it's got brain octane, maybe dandelion and chicory root, ghee or cinnamon, turmeric, all sorts of yummy little things. And I blend it up as kind of like, and because it's winter here in Australia, having a really nice warm drink in the morning is just really delicious. Well, see, that's a high-fat drink. If you're putting in uh, the MCT oil, brain octane, that is a uh, that's saturated fat, but that's coming from the coconut. Uh, the ghee is fatty, and so I know that you know many people will think that's perfect. You know, Dave Asprey's been promoting the uh, uh, coffee like that with uh, two types of oils in it: the ghee and or butter and and the MCT oil. But there's a bunch of people. Uh, well, actually, I had a friend come and stay with me, and we did. We looked at her genes, and she has one copy of the APOE4 gene. So she's at risk for Alzheimer's. And she was making the coffee, you know, the Bulletproof coffee, and she was putting in butter and MCT oil and just raving over how great it made her feel. And she had, she didn't get hungry all day for most of the day. And, and then I looked at her genes, and, um, you know, she, she, you don't know you have this gene. It's Alzheimer's comes on very slowly over a long period of time, but she should not be having that coffee. Mm. Mm. And then, although turmeric is, you know, people rave about turmeric and it's got all these great things about it. For some people that are sensitive to oxalates, it's a very, very high in oxalates. So you could be react if you're one of those super sensitive people with a leaky gut and other reasons that cause you to react to oxalates, you know, turmeric isn't for you. So that is where, you know, I love to hear what people are having, but, you know, I realize, well, that's working really well for you, but there's, you know, and, and it's a very common um, symptom of oxalates, being sensitive to oxalates is pain, you know, joint, joint problems like knee problems, but um, also dry eyes and also, um, well, well, they've already they've had a, over two dozen children pull, pull their eye out from the pain that in their eye uh, because they couldn't talk, you know, and their mothers were giving them a diet that they were eating a lot of um, almond flour, pancakes, and cookies, and all the things, you know, the like for example, on the SCD diet, a lot of the parents are moving. Uh, they they still want to give the kids the cookies and so on, and they're making them out of the almond flour. So they're getting that um, very, very high oxalates. And so it's, that, that's a community of people that are super, super high sensitive to oxalates. And so turmeric wouldn't be good for them either. Uh, you know, if you, um, so there's a calcium uh, will help bind up the oxalates in our gut. 
and keep it from getting into the body. But if you're eating a high-fat diet, the fat binds the calcium, so it can't bind up the oxalates. And we're supposed to have bacteria, uh, one bacteria, uh, oxalobacter formigenes in our gut that will um, eat the oxalates so that they don't get up into the body and cause stones. But usually he's wiped out with an antibiotic and doesn't come back. He's one of the missing microbes that Dr. Martin Blazer talks about in his book, Missing Microbes book. And, you know, so they, um, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting story. And it's a very important story for people to know about because people are, are taking in too many oxids today. We don't have that bacteria protecting us. Other bacteria will take over like plantarum. Uh, that bacteria eats oxalates, bifidus will, but a very good oxid eater is the bacillus. You know, the um, they're called spores. And we've just, the new um, probiotic protein drink that we're bringing out has four of the bacillus spores in them. That that drink is called Pro, Body Ecology's Probiotic Protein Shake. Uh, but it's a great, great uh, microbe, these four microbes. But it's good to put bacillus in your gut. They're very effective at helping heal leaky gut, and they're good oxid eaters. So when I was doing that talk with uh, for James Maskell for the Gene Summit, and he was asking me to talk about the genes for, of the microbes, I did research on the bacillus to find out what their genes were and what those genes did. And that's when I found out that they um, they do have the genes for degrading oxalates too, the bacillus do. Um, the whole story of the gut and the microbes is really fascinating, what we eat. And it seems really complicated to people, but if you just hang out with it, um, you know, you just start picking up all this information, fine-tuning. You know, watch real carefully what you eat and see how you feel from it. So, like with you, Melissa, that drink is maybe working really, really well for you. But to be absolutely sure, you want to have your genes tested and see if you have, like, the APOE4 gene. And then you think, well, as warming and fulfilling as that drink is in the morning, it may not be the right thing for you. Mm, yeah, I'm going to go and look back over my genes and just make sure. Check that one. Check the um, the APOE4, check the FATO, and the, there's one called APOA and APOB. And I'm trying to think of the other ones, some of the other ones. But anyway, yeah, a little handful of them. And again, I, I write about them in that article that's coming out. Oh, I can't wait to read that. I'm really excited. And like you said, you know, it feels good for me now and it might change, who knows, but right now what I'm eating and I'm so in tune with myself and my body and I always listen. If something doesn't feel right, I, you know, I stop eating it. Um, I know things for me like gluten and dairy and sugar do not agree with me. Alcohol does not agree with me. So for me, I don't have those things in my life because I know that they don't serve me. And alcohol is very high in um, histamines also, so that's not good for anyone that has a little histamine bucket. Uh, wine, kombucha, which is very, very popular today, is super, super high uh, in, in any of the fermented foods that have wild yeast in them, like wine and kombucha. You know, those are the ones that are going to cause the greatest reaction to someone who's sensitive to histamines. But yeah, that's good. You know, you... For the most part, I think we, you know, there's another gene called um, CYP1A2. That gene, if you have that gene, you don't clear caffeine. So you have a little bit of coffee and it stays with you. You stay very up, you know, stimulated for a long time. 
uh, for these people with this gene, you can't have like a chocolate cake at dinner because you won't go to sleep that night. Most people, but when you say, oh, you've got a variant in the 1A2 gene, and so, you know, you don't clear caffeine very easily, they'll say, oh, yeah, I know that already. And so they haven't been having, you know, chocolate at night or having caffeine at all. Uh, so we, we often know what's best for our body. I think we, you know, we always should be tuned into our body no matter what we eat. Often we're just simply dehydrated. That's another issue with histamine and SIBO. You want to drink a lot of water, oxalates too. Uh, if you have an issue with oxalates, you want to drink a lot of water. And I think we aren't drinking a, enough water today. Mm, I agree. Absolutely. A supplement that's actually really good that most people don't think about, uh, OPCs, uh, the French marine pine bark, that's really good for helping to co- control histamine. And when people has, have histamine uh, reactions, they often have ADD or ADHD behavior. They have a you know, hard time focusing, um, staying still. They just are ADD or ADHD. So that's, an, you know, I mean, they may think that they're spacey, but it's really the histamine that's causing the problem. And that's histamine from the meal that you ate is, can also cause your sleep problems. So it is important to get histamine under control. But that French marine pine bark OPC, uh, it's, it's a, actually a good supplement for helping control histamine. And then there's an enzyme called a DAO. I mean, actually there is a gene called DAO, but you can buy DAO as a supplement and take that with a meal that you suspect is high in histamine and that will help, um, you know, degrade that histamine too. So there are definitely, you know, things to do to help that person with, with histamine problems. I would love to hear your thoughts and Kristen would love to know about occasionally drinking wine and alcohol. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it is a super high histamine food without any doubt. There are again, you know, genes, ALDH, uh, tells you how well you clear alcohol. And some people, like over in the Asian, the Asians, they about 50% of Asians have a variant in the ALDH gene. And when they take in alcohol, they get extremely flushed and itchy, you know, because they're having a super, super strong histamine response to that alcohol. So again, genes are another factor. But if you have a tendency to make too much histamine or uh, in the moment, your histamine bucket is overfull because you just had too many high histamine f- foods. You need to empty it back down a little bit. I would say absolutely avoid the wine uh, and alcohol. It's not good for you. There, you know, alcohol is turns into acetaldehyde, and acetaldehyde is exactly what the most toxic substance that the yeast make is acetaldehyde. It does so many bad things in the body. You can Google acetaldehyde and just you'll see pages and pages and pages of information on it. It's studied extensively because alcohol, alcoholism is such a problem in this all around the world. But when you have yeast, the same thing that you're reading about, um, you know, for the acetaldehyde for alcohol is also true for someone with candidiasis. Uh, so, you know, many people already have candidiasis in their body. They don't need to add more acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde definitely leads to, sets us up for having cancer. Depression has a big effect on the brain. So to me, to me alcohol is out. People who, the, the super centenarians, super centenarians that live long, long lives, 
Uh, some of them drink and some of them smoke. So it's really hard to figure it out, but it doesn't matter about them. And what matters is you, what works for your unique special body. And we're getting into personalized medicine today and we're really entering a whole new world of being able to help people. So it's, you know, it's good to know all this, but it's good to work with a functional medicine doctor who this is second nature to them. You know, you sit down with your functional medicine doctor, your practitioner, I mean, your practitioner, and you, you work together as a team to figure out what you need to do. And, and, and they can help you know you. And when you know yourself, especially, you know, what condition's going on? Are you a male, female? What age are you? Um, you know, uh, of course, your genes. And then, even even your beliefs and thoughts and everything will have a, an effect too on on how you're digesting food. So what what about lifestyle things like you're getting any exercise? Are you getting enough sleep? You know you need to sit down and uh, work all this out with your functional medicine practitioner and work out a simple plan for you, and then forget about all that and just go on and enjoy your life. I know a lot of people today are so sick that they're very very focused on their health. And even caught up in it and it really life is passing them by so i would love to see people get it all together you know find out you are unique it doesn't matter what anyone's doing you have to know what works for you put that into place and then start enjoying life which is where you specialize in helping people ah uh, yeah I cannot agree more. Get out there. I've seen so many people who are stressing and so consumed by their health. And I understand because I've been there. But the most important thing is that you're having fun and you're laughing and you're enjoying your life. That's going to be the best thing for your health and happiness. It is. It's a powerful healing tool. Absolutely. Well, Donna, thank you so much for coming back on the show again. We are so grateful to have your wisdom and your knowledge. And who knows, we'll probably get you back on again another time. Well, ask me and I'll probably be here. <laughs> I enjoy this and I love working with you too, Melissa. So, And I'll see you soon. I'll be over in Australia in October doing our training over there. So i um, looking forward to getting back to Australia. I love Australians and feel at home there. So I'll see you soon. Can't wait. And we'll link to your training in the show notes. So everyone that is interested in coming and doing the body ecology training, which I've done, which is amazing, they can check it out in the show notes. And we have a whole new training, lots of focus on genes. And it's I'm really excited to come there this year and, and share this training with people. So thanks, Melissa, for promoting it. Thank you so much, Donna. Isn't she a wealth of knowledge? She's such a beautiful person inside and out, and I'm very grateful that she came back on the show today for us. I also wanted to acknowledge and thank everyone who sent in a question. Your questions were great, and I know many people will get lots out of the questions and the answers. And I just wanted to remind you guys that the most important thing that you can do for your health and happiness is to have fun. Like Donna said, make sure you're fully living your life and laughing hysterically along the way. That is definitely my intention. So if you loved today's episode as much as I did, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review because that means we can inspire even more people together. And don't forget to tell me on Twitter who you would like me to interview and make sure you tag me at 
Mel underscore Ambrosini and the person you would like me to interview using the hashtag the Melissa Ambrosini show. And for everything that we mentioned in the podcast, you can check out in the show notes and that is at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 36. And you can check out all my other episodes there as well. So thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best version of yourself possible and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone that you can think of at the forefront of your mind that would really get a lot out of this episode, please forward it to them right now. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.